0: Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Hello and welcome to the conversation on Collopium. Today I have with me Will Crampton. Will, Sailed across the Atlantic when he was 18, then flew across the Pacific as an exchange student to China in 1986. He has had a long career in tech, business, and language education, and he's focused on the U.S., Asia, and China markets as an expat businessman in Asia for the last 20 years. Will, thank you for joining the show. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. So we met at a family office conference, learned a little bit about what you're focused on, before we went live, we were just talking about how we were watching the Winter Olympic coverage. Right. And for the first time ever, you've got Mike Tirico, you know, engaging with PhD uh, professors from Yale and people that work at Bloomberg Global and Financial Times talking about geopolitical issues surrounding US-China relations. So I'm excited to just kind of get right into it, considering your wealth of knowledge
2: well, let's and- talk. Let's talk about that for just a second. Because, let's do it. Yeah. Because what we what we were seeing last night you're talking mm-hmm. about you're talking about voices from a lot of different places, trying to make sense of what we're going to do. Um, and let's talk right about it. There are people who say we shouldn't invest in China, and there are people who say it's my money. I'm going to invest in China if I think it's going to give me a return. And there are people who say. We're a multinational company. If we're not in China, you're, you know, we're, we're, you know, we have to be in China. There are people. There are many people, many international business people, who think they must be in China, and for the future too. You know, it's not only about what's happening there now. So, and then there, you know, and then, and then there are people who say, no, you just, you just can't do it. But it's a very this these things we haven't had to deal with these too much for the past 20, 30, 25 years, because um, my, my paradigm is uh, Panda China, Dragon China. So Panda China was Deng Xiaoping, uh, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao, we can talk about it a little bit more. And then in 2012, you know, Deng Xiaoping was there in 78, I got to China in 86 and sort of saw the beginning, You know, sort of in the early stages of when China was starting to, had bolted this capitalist motor on its socialist frame. And and it was really starting to take off. Business was really starting to take off uh, private business. and and that was the that has been the engine for the growth in China. And in the beginning, when I was there in 90s and, and 2000, uh, you know the 2000s, it was go go, go, everybody you know get in, get your piece of the pie. China's opening up, it's getting to be more like us. you know we did not um, see or feel or exactly what we're seeing and feeling now and then in 2012 Xi Jinping came in and I built businesses in China multiple a couple of businesses in China over the years and and then Xi Jinping came in in 2012 and he is a bigger fan of Mao state central control and that is what is happening is he is taking China back towards the model pre-1978 you know Mao Zedong died in 1976 Deng Xiaoping was in by 78, and he wants to go back to a more Maoist model where he's at the top of the pyramid and everybody does what he says. I think that's a pretty fair characterization. You know, who could get angry at me in China or anywhere else for saying that? That's what that's what they're doing.
1: So I can already tell we're going to go up to the hour limit on this because I had, interestingly enough, I had we're recording this in February of 2022. So the Olympics just starting. Yeah. And the way they set this up on NBC last night was by using this 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing versus yeah. the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing and how there has been this paradigm shift of a more complacent, quieter China welcoming the world to now where it's really a position of strength of you should be glad to be here for our party kind of set up. Yeah. And, and yeah. the tone has shifted dramatically. And it it seems like from an outsider this is just another step of she cementing his pace in what a friend that I had lunch with yesterday or, or earlier this week in Nashville told me is basically a crab pot where you've got, you know, she at the top of the pyramid and he set up everything around him in terms yeah. of industry and commerce, social components, solidifying his power base, seemingly yeah indefinitely in almost a a Vladimir Putin style model of, of, you know, Soviet democracy where you have to vote,
2: but there's only one candidate. That's not for sure. I'll talk about that in a minute, but that's not for sure. Don't he's, he wants you to think that, but that's, but that's not for sure. um, So I'll, I'll jump in. What happened is Mao Zedong was like, we're who we are. If you like it, you know, talk to us. If you don't, I don't care get out of here. We're, you know, we're locking the country down. And he locked the country down for 20, 30 years. And <clears throat> Deng Xiaoping came in, was the reformer. He did the four modernizations. He's like, open the door. And his, you know, his sayings, he had a couple of, he was, he was a, you know, he was a Yogi Berra kind of guy. He had a lot of good sayings like uh, black cat, white cat, cat that catches mice is a good cat. When he got argument from communists who said, you can't, You can't do private business. He said, you know, we want to develop the economy. He was very practical. And so people who study China, you know, he was a communist leader of China. So I'm not a big fan of communism. Let me put that up front. And anybody who thinks that communism is a good idea, I lived it for many years, you would not like it. Um, and that's my that's my personal opinion. Brought to you by the not communists of the world. So so what happened is Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping said a very key saying. He said, and that made everybody shut up. It was um, bide our time, hi, uh, hide our strength. Bide our time, kind of a famous saying um, of his. And his idea was, you know, we can do things that we want to do later. Let's solve the problem of, you know, people have nice nicer clothes and people, you know, um, catch up with the West a little bit because, <clears throat> you know, Mao never traveled and he didn't care about anything outside of China. He went. He took one trip international ever to Moscow. That's it. But people around him, Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping had been to France. Um, you know, they'd seen the outside world, and they're you know tugging on Mao's sleeve, saying, "Hey, you know, there's more happening out there." And he's like, "I don't care. I don't care about that." So Deng Xiaoping opened the door. Another of his sayings is, "If you open the door, some flies will come in." And those are you know the annoying foreign capitalists you know, mosquito buzzing around you kind of guys. And then Jiang Zemin was a friendly panda, shaking hands, smiling, wearing cowboy hat, debating Clinton at, at, uh, at Harvard. Um, and then Hu Jintao was like, was like you know, he was just like, a, you know, a, a board. <laughs> he was a piece of wood. Nobody could figure him out. And he was sort of, he didn't have many opinions about anything. His job, he was a placeholder, Um, you know, but uh, a couple things happened. Under Hu Jintao, they brought China up out of poverty, like 400 million people got out of abject poverty under Hu Jintao. That was his thing. And that's sort of what he cared about. And that's what he did. And he wasn't loud or flashy about it, you know, and he never, you know, he he never Instagrammed his lunch, you know, I mean, he never appeared nobody ever knew anything that he was thinking but sort of as the stats came out over the years you know we sort of figured out oh this guy you know he's just what they're doing is developing China getting people out of poverty getting them to the lower middle class and then a bunch of people got into the middle class and now there's you know now there's 300 million people in the middle class in China there's the the same number of people as in the United States our, our entire population Is the middle class of China, and there's 50, 60, 70 million very wealthy people um, up at the top. So then, so then I'll I'll shut up in a minute. But but we get to the point where. But I just want to take people, listeners, through this to be very clear about this. Deng Xiaoping opened it up. uh, Jiang Zemin went around shaking hands, smiling at everybody. Hu Jintao kept it going and and sort of focused internally quite a bit, uh, but still in a friendly way, generally friendly way. And we get to 2012, which is the beginning of Xi Jinping's first five-year term, and he walked in and basically said, "Okay, I'm in charge now." <clears throat> and it was we didn't know that we didn't know that much about him except that I had heard about him and I think I met him once or twice. He was the um, he was in uh, Fujian province uh, and in uh, Zhejiang province. These are two major East Coast provinces, big. Uh, big business provinces um, in eastern China he was the governor and then he got promoted into the center and then he got up then he got up to the top and he's a he's a red uh you know he's a red princeling his father was a general in the in the army on the long march so <clears throat> so he gets in and he and Deng Xiaoping's slogan was hide our strength bide our time and Xi Jinping definitely very quickly by 2013, he walked in and said, "I'm in charge, and it is now our time. Our time is now. There's no, we're not waiting for anything more. So, <clears throat> so here's the deal. Let me tell you the deal. Kissinger and Nixon went and met Mao and Zhou Enlai in the night in the 1970s, and they made a deal. You sort of come over, sort of onto our side." Um, as a counterweight to the Soviet Union, who we were still in the Cold War with, you know, remember, there's three, you know, three big powers, there's China, there's China, the Soviet Union and the United States. And what Kissinger, the architect of this policy did, is he's like, let's get China over on our side of the scale. And for 30 years, China sort of was on our side of the scale, because we didn't really understand this. But China and and the Soviet Union had a big falling out in the 1950s and 60s. And it wasn't obvious to everybody, but basically Mao hated the Soviet Union because he didn't Soviet Union wasn't red enough for him. <clears throat> and so and so that's sort of that's sort of the genesis of it. The big thing that I don't know is if Kissinger and he's still alive, somebody ask him, if Kissinger knew what would happen now, eventually, you know 30, 40 years later, we'd get this 30, 40-year honeymoon, we'd get to know each other, we'd start working together, and did he know that there would be a falling out, which is what we're having right now. We're having a falling out, and it is going to continue to fall out, economically, diplomatically, at some point, potentially militarily. We all wish that that won't happen, but that's what it looks like.
1: So my question to you is, over the last three to five years, Xi and China have had a much more bellicose slant on the world, in the south china sea hong kong taiwan etc what's the end game
2: uh the end game well so there's steps and china is a you know china the national government of china controlled by the communist party of china with 92 million members communist party of china you know verging on, you know, 8% of the population is our Communist Party members, a number much larger than most European countries, right? If the Communist Party members of China were a country, they'd be like number 10 or 12 or something like that. Their goal, the goal of all Communist parties is expand and control. So, but they are, the Communist Party of China are cold calculating machines. So they he got out over his skis last year. He, he, you know, they've got the definite goal in their mind, which is take over the world economically and politically if they can. Right. And that's the goal. So how are we going to get to that goal? Well, step one, we never had much of a Navy. Let's build a Navy. Then we control what we call our close ocean, which is the South China sea and the East China sea. And that's everything to the first Island chains, the Philippines, Taiwan, Japan right they want they will dominate that that is they feel that that's their territory just like you know and and this I get this over and over again when I'm talking to people in China it's like well you know Monroe Doctrine you know and that's what I know, just thought
1: what, in my mind about how we treated South America back in the 19th and century what,
2: right? and what happened when Russia wanted to put missiles in Cuba? what did we do?
1: It was a bright line
2: bright line. Yeah. What's going to happen, you know, when and the situation in Cuba, which is an island nation just off our coast, is we we will talk about Taiwan today or sometime soon because, and, and I want to tell you, it's a complicated and very emotional issue for many people, but I will, you know, I'm an old China hand been involved in Studying and watching China since the 1980s, and I mean, I I will. I'm not. I'm not crazy emotional invested in it. I hate to see democratic nations fall. You know, but but China is an. um, uh, Sorry, Taiwan is an emotional issue for China. It is one of the two or three destabilizing issues in which China, in which an emotion might overcome China's um, cold calculating nature. So China's cold calculating nature is number one. Take over the close China take take over the close China Seas. When I first went to China in 1986, I bought a couple of maps at the you know in Wangfujing at the at the at the uh, Xinhua bookstore in Wangfujing, which is downtown Beijing. They have this bookstore, and it was the best place that you could get any you know anything. They had they had foreign magazines, although they were a month old. So we'd go in there every you know every couple of months. We we'd get in there, and I bought a map in there. I took it out, and it had the nine dash line. If you've ever heard of that, the nine dash line is back in the fifties. Chinese cartographers drew this line that we own all of this. And it goes, it goes way down. Hey,
1: you're you're back. So yeah, I watched you the at
2: Chinese sensors. That was the Chinese <laughs> sensors hacking into my computer. Not liking what I'm saying.
1: So uh editors, let's start right where he talked about the nine dash line. We use at the bookstore. Okay, we'll hit
2: it. Yeah, so so I bought this I bought this map at the bookstore, and it showed two things that surprised me. One was the nine dash line going way down by Vietnam and and uh, Indonesia, right off the coast of Borneo, and way up you know put right up against the side of the Philippines. You know, definitely inside their two hundred mile nautical you know uh, exclusive economic zone, right? So <clears throat> that was number one. And the second thing that it that it had on it. It had Korea as one nation, North and South Korea as one nation with the capital in Pyongyang. So when I looked at this map, I was like, okay, well, there's a couple of there's here's one thing that is clearly wrong, according to everybody in the entire world. And that's North Korea. You know, there's a South Korea and its capital is Seoul. I've heard of that. And here's another weird thing that people don't agree with. Foreign people, non-Chinese people, don't agree with, and that's the nine-dash line. So uh, I'll try and I'll I'll try and restrain myself and and get more on point. But basically, half of world trade goes through that those those shipping line those shipways those those shipping um, you know those shipping areas. So at some point, if China controls that militarily, and that's what they did when they built out six or seven. Islands, um, you know, they've they've fortified and built military grade airports on four or five islands. You know, the Fiery Cross Reef and and uh, the Paracels, et cetera. You know, they did massive building projects over the past ten years to build, um, you know, to build a presence there. And one of them is like twelve miles off the coast of the Philippines. And yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you go. Yeah. So so basically, step one is control close oceans everything inside everything inside the you know those limits step 2 is get taiwan back and get taiwan back let me this this is involved with something that i don't know if all of your listenership knows about so i'll just lay it out xi jinping has had two 5 year terms like the two guys before him and Deng Xiaoping's idea was, hey, let's everybody have two five-year terms and then step down. So Xi Jinping's idea is, nah, I don't think I want to do that. And so he, in the past year, you might have heard this. It's been in the news quite a bit. People who watch China say that Xi Jinping has sort of tried to put himself in a class by himself, right? <clears throat> so so in other words, he's like Mao. I'm the core leadership of the party I'm, you know, I'm in charge of all three major power centers, you know, in China. Okay. Uh, and I'm being written into the constitution. My name is being written into the constitution. These are marks that he's very strong. And so his second five-year term ends this year, 2022. And if, if he will be confirmed, he will be confirmed in November of this year. So he got out over his skis a little bit in 2021. and Basically, he just whipped the country, you know, he, he whipped private enterprise into shape. And it all started in uh, 2020, September, October 2020. Jack Ma made a speech. That's the head of Alibaba. He made a speech and said, you know, uh, let's not do this old style finance. We really should do microfinance, a lot of good, you know, a lot of international sort of good ideas, <clears throat> but they would have taken power away from the center. And so, and so he was like within days of his IPO, which would have been the largest IPO in history for Ant Financial. And, and Xi Jinping said, Yeah, I don't like what you said. We're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. Now you're going to hiding for three, you know, you're going you're gonna to stay in a, in a hotel, a nice hotel. You'll be safe. You know, what happens? Just for your information, what happens is a, two guys come and knock on your door and they say, We're from the center. And you say, the center of what? And they say, the center of the country. And they and you say, okay, what's going on? And they say, let's go drink tea, he cha. It's called cha. And cha means you come with us now, we'll buy a toothbrush on the way. You're not going anywhere and we're gonna talk to anybody. You are disappeared now for months. And this has happened to a number of uh, you know major corporation heads. Jack Ma was not the first, he won't be the last. It's happened to sporting stars, sports stars. You've probably heard about, you know, Peng Shui. You know, they're safe. They're not going to be harmed, but they're not going to be, they're not going to have public access. All right. <clears throat> so after that, basically they went after industries one by one by one. And the biggest thing that they went after was the tech industry. Any company that had data that could include identifying data of delivery parcels, of, um, you know, of who, of where you're going, like Didi Chuxing. Didi is China's Uber, and um, Uber actually owns a piece of Didi because they they said, okay, we'll leave China, and if, if you give us some shares of you, and that's what they that's what they did. So Didi again was within, you know, went public in in New York, and then the Chinese government forced them to delist. So <clears throat> so the when I, when we say, and the reason is because no private company can ever be bigger than and the party that's it and it doesn't matter who you are you know in fact Donald Trump in fact Donald Trump and uh, Donald Trump versus Jeff Bezos is very similar to Xi Jinping versus Alibaba uh, Jack ma because Jack ma owns the Jack Ma's companies control the South China Morning Post a major independent voice newspaper um, for Asia. And Jeff Bezos owns the Washington he owns the Washington Post, which says a lot of things that Trump didn't like and Biden probably doesn't like either. Imagine the American, the United States government, the president could just like close him down or, you know, really take his business down five notches, not just one with just like the stroke of a pen. That kind of thing can happen in China. So now all the, and the reality, you know, we were talking about um, Brian, we were talking about. Uh, you know, we met at a family office event. There are tremendous, immense fortunes that have been built up by people, uh, you know, private enterprise and people connected government enterprise. People in in China, families in China are fabulously wealthy. There's a lot of them, uh, and China now has more billionaires and is making more billionaires than the United States every year. <clears throat> okay. But anybody with any sense is now getting half, 40%, half their money out of China in any way that they could figure out to do it. Private capital is fleeing China.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's what I was going to interject with here is I understand that the, the Taiwan dynamic, which I would like to get into a little bit more, I might not have time, the rate that we're going. But what you see playing out in Hong Kong is clearly a solidification of their you know geographic footprint. And yeah. your, your analogy with Cuba and, and the Soviets is is telling because last night, my son, he's eight, was asking me about the Uyghurs. Yeah. He said, you know, what is the, imp- he didn't use the word impetus, but he said, why would they be doing this? And I said, well, there's a, there's a hard question to answer. This multi-dynamic. But one of the reasons is they are not going to repeat the mistakes that the Soviet Union made, which is trying to have a truly diverse ethnic population under one rule, they're going to make sure that the Han are running the show and they don't want any other voices in the room. Because again, to your point, they're learning from the mistakes the Soviets made of trying to keep this conglomeration together over a multi-generational time horizon. And so I believe that's one of the main reasons they're, they're moving against them. And Hong Kong obviously is an outpost of this colonial power is just has a huge target on its back. And you and I are both know families in APAC. Hong Kong is no longer going to be a center of commerce in that part of the world. It's going to be Singapore and and people are getting out any which way they can. And they're taking, to your point, huge losses on their capital in order to do it.
0: Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities premium content and education and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com.
2: Well, they think, you know, in in the in my last years, I left China in 2015 and for the for the five or six years before that, you know, the Chinese the, a Chinese a Chinese provincial, central, provincial or city level official in China. Uh, can revoke your business license, confiscate everything you own, and throw you in jail for the rest of your life. You know, it's like you've heard of, you know, you've heard of traffic, you've heard of like state police confiscating everything in your car. You know, if you have $10,000 in your car and they find it, they'll take it and they and they just confiscate it. You know, it's kind of like that, but on a much larger on a much larger scale, so there are cases of a number of large businesses that you know the government just take just takes them. Basically, they hold. You know, I mean, uh, the the reality is is that is is that they take them. Now you're in the real estate industry, <clears throat> and the hold of all land is they walked in and killed most of the landlords. You um Mao Zedong himself, when they 53, 54, 55, land, kill the landlords, give it to the local pest That's what they did. They took all the land, so the, the ton of the land is owned, is owned by the government. And every, anything that anybody has, developers have, Evergrande has, Kaya has land use rights 70 years you have to pay again yeah and the contracts are starting to come due because they started in the 1980s so so that is the reason for I'm I'm getting a little bit off topic but that is the reason for why they want to put in place a land tax china has never had one you know like a local land tax almost you know a city in america has a has a tax right but china has never had one they've made their money the government has made their money and real estate is 25, 30% of the Chinese economy from the government grabs a piece of land, sells it to a developer that then they run their government based on that money. But now they're sort of starting to run out of land. And so what are they going to do next? You know, all these, you know, 30, 40, 50, 70 year contract for land use rights are going to come up. And then they're you know, there are people who are living in those apartments who thought that they own them or they've been there for two generations, you know, for one or two generations. So what's going to happen probably is that the government is just going to say, OK, start paying us like rent, land use, ta- you know, land tax. And that's a massive shift in the way that things are done. So one thing you have to say about China is they don't, <clears throat> you know, they, they operate at scale. So when they look at I, I've had this conversation. Let's talk about Taiwan for a second. I have had this conversation with a number of Chinese government officials. And what happened is there was a government in charge of China. It was the nationalist government, the Kuomintang, the KMT. And that was, you know, a strong man led, but, you know, basically democratic uh, country. And we came to their aid uh, in World War II, the Flying tigers, etc. America helped China in World War II. And then at the end of World War II, the communists win the war, the internal civil war for China. <clears throat> we were backing the nationalists. The nationals, um, you know, fled to Chongqing. We airlifted supplies in there. You know, they they, they, uh, they fled to Taiwan. We supported them. We stayed with the government that was the government while we were, you know, while we were, while we knew China. Uh, An insurgency came up, the communists, and they eventually won the country. The nationalists fled to China. We kept our loyalty to the original government that we had known. So that's why we supported China. Plus, we're not communists, we're, you know, we're democratic. And Taiwan sort of agreed to slowly become more democratic, as it has. Um, you know, and when we when people look at Taiwan, you know, we don't. You know, the first thing that we think of is, oh, it's you know, kind of a modern economy, you know, similar to similar to uh, Japan and Korea. <laughs> All right. So then, mainland China is in charge of mainland China, and but there is no truce declared. They're still at war. And Taiwan says mainland China is still our land, and mainland China, says Taiwan is, is ancient land of 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 China, and we own it. So this is still a you know brother versus brother. You know who are we? We're the guys who live down the streets. We can't really get in the way of that, and we never have. We do not have um, you know the Shanghai the Shanghai Communique that we signed, the United States signed with Mao Zedong, said that China can replace, you know, it said a lot of things. Over the course of a few years, starting with the Shanghai community, mainland China replaced Taiwan for uh, for China's seat at the United Nations. And then after that, piece by piece, bit by bit, mainland China has become the government of China. And Taiwan is only supported by a couple of smaller nations now around the world. Because people look at what's happening. Mainland China has developed to the point where they outweigh Taiwan, uh, even though. And so the idea Deng Xiaoping signed this, you know, Deng Xiaoping signed an agreement with Hong Kong, one country, two systems for 50 years. Hong Kong will remain Hong Kong like it is for 50 years. And, you know, Deng Xiaoping gets out of office, Jiang Zemin comes in, Hu Jintao comes in. And Xi Jinping comes in and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, we're you know, I'm, you know, renegotiate." And so, and so basically, they just did whatever they want to and continue to do whatever they want to to lock down Hong Kong. But Hong Kong has a very unique position in China. The Hong Kong dollar is freely exchangeable. It is a exchangeable currency but the Chinese renminbi is not a freely exchangeable currency on international markets. So Hong Kong is going to be the economic buffer between mainland China and and the rest of the world because China learns lessons. You know, they saw what happened to Malaysia. Go back and look this up if you don't know about it. You know, the Malaysian ringgit got, you know, got trashed, uh, you know, by by international currency traders, and China never wants to see that happen to them, so they're gonna keep this buffer. I don't think the renminbi is freely exchangeable. China has two currencies, has, has the renminbi now, paper money, and they also have the e yuan, the digital yuan, and they now control the Hong, the Hong Kong dollar, which is like the seventh or eighth most traded uh, currency in the world, top 10 currency, and so, Problem is, is that Hong Kong was the test run for Taiwan. If I'm in Taiwan, I'm a Taiwanese person, I look at Hong Kong, I'm gonna say, I don't, you know, I don't want that. You know, let's go do some marching drills, you know. And the United States has never had a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. We have an agreement with Taiwan to supply them with weapons with which they can defend themselves. So they've got some of our best, you know, they got some of our best planes and and everything else, and they're pretty dug in. But um, but here's here's the timeline. Let's talk about Taiwan. Xi Jinping will probably not move on Taiwan unless he is really threatened by another by another faction within the Chinese government. And we Americans and other people outside of China, most people feel that China is this big monolith and it is not you know the difference between north and south and beijing and shanghai and guangzhou and shenzhen and the west it's huge in terms of culture i mean it's the difference between you know boston and los angeles or you know um germany and uh, italy you know there's huge regional differences within within the country and our factions within a 92 million, 95 million strong communist party. There was the reformist faction, which was Deng Xiaoping. And and now Xi Jinping is, you know, the old school faction, the Mao faction, and they're ascendant. But they also got out, I said before a couple of times, they got out over their skis last year. And they got a lot of pushback from 300 300 million middle class and you know, 50, 60 million wealthy that are like you're you're killing the goose that laid the golden egg. You know you're you're destroying the economy by your actions. And you know Xi Jinping and his people on you know the Xi on the Xi team, Xi Jinping team are like no, we're you know we're we're making it what it should be, what they think it should be, which is a lockdown, centrally controlled you know uh, communist nation. This has always been their goal. This has always been the end game. They're going to start with China. They're going to they're going to move outwards. So let's talk about timing for Taiwan. I'm getting off subject. Timing for Taiwan is Xi Jinping will probably not make a move this year because he doesn't get he doesn't get confirmed until November of 2022 this year for his third five year term, which he greatly desires. If he had a lot of pushback or great challenge from somebody he'd pull the trigger because you have to support the leader in a warfare situ- war situation right you know that's what strong men do they they start a war if they're being challenged so that's the that's that the Putin playbook
1: happen. with ukraine right now
2: right that might happen but it probably won't um my read is that and the second decision point is and there's a, there's two or three reasons, and I'll 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 say them in just a second. The second decision point is 2024, November November 2024. Who will be the next U.S. president? If it looks like it's going to be a really strong guy who doesn't like China, Xi Jinping might take Taiwan before that in 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 the end of 2024. And then the next decision point after that would probably be would would be um, when his third five year term, before his third five year term is up. So his second, his third five year term would start at the end of this year 2022. So by 2027, um, maybe 2025, 2026, he would make a move. And the reason is, the reason he doesn't do it now is because he would completely tank his economy. And China is really dependent. On foreign chips. Um, this has been. This is real. I'm in the tech industry. I worked in China. I actually trained an American microchip company that was operating in China, National Semiconductor. They, they were one of my customers. I, got to know, um, I, got I lost you again. Pretty, pretty well in China. And the reality is, they can't make small. China can't make small, uh, small, very small process microchips. They also can't make very powerful jet engines. They have trouble with that. There's a few things they can't. Do. So right now they're spending enormous amounts of money. And the reason that that's a problem is because TSMC, corporation, sixty percent
1: of Sorry. the small. Sorry, Will, so If they try to take
2: Taiwan, yeah. all right. So what? Uh, so uh, did you hear about uh, TSMC, the the small chips?
1: Yeah, I, so I've heard that they that this, the chip issue is real. And I real. there's somebody in Nashville that I met with who has expertise within the China space was telling me that the Taiwanese have made it very clear that they will nuke their own chip facilities and essentially create a poison pill if mainland China makes a move on them. Do you agree with that?
2: The sensors don't like what I'm talking <laughs> about. There's dynamite under the floorboards in TSMC, which is... Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing uh, Corporation, and they make 60% of the small process, the tiny little chips that go into Chinese mobile phones and toasters and refrigerators and everything else, cars. So if the supply of, you know, the chips must flow, if the supply of chips is cut off, then China would, you know, China would really be in in a tough place. So they think that they can replace this within three to five years. That's what they're trying to do right now. If they can replace, create their own small chip industry, their own chip industry for small chips, if they could get up to 70 or 80 percent of the chips that they need, they'd pull the trigger. I've had this conversation with Chinese leaders. In 1989, we took some action against, you know, there was an incident in June 4th, 1989 in China. Everybody threw up their hands and ran away and it was all bad. And then two or three years later, by the mid 90s, everybody came back and then it got better and better from there. So if we need to spend, um, you know, two years, three years, five years of our brilliant growth future to get Taiwan back, we'll do it. That's what they've said to me, because Taiwan is an emotional issue. You know, there's only a couple of things that, you know, that that get beyond their cold calculating. Nature And Taiwan is one of the emotional issues that that gets right to their heart.
1: So what is your opinion? Should the U.S. come to the defense or should we let it go long term, strategically?
2: (sighs) My personal opinion is um, they're one of us. If we let them go, the day that we do not help Taiwan is the day that the United States drops Two or three rankings in the global power index, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, I I would think that if we if we don't move, <clears throat> Japan and South Korea are pretty nervous. Exactly. That's and my then next we're time. pretty much giving up the whole hemisphere.
2: No, you know, um
1: or at least Southeast Japan, Asia. Japan
2: Japan is a much, much tougher nut to crack for for uh for China and but But there's I a lot of history say, there too. I mean I will there's say a that lot they of have, animosity they history. and history there. They, yeah. they, you know, they want to do something that they call teach them a lesson, you know, and they tried to do that. Most people don't know this, but um, China actually fought a short war with Vietnam. And the idea was that we're going to teach them a lesson and it didn't go very well. They lo- China kind of lost to Vietnam, which is, a, you know, has a pretty kick-ass military, you know, comparatively, you know, they punch above their weight and Japan is been preparing for a long time. They have all the technology in the world. They, you know, they have a self-defense force. You know, they uh, it, it would be very costly. And what would and what would China get? What do they? What would they hope to get by attacking Japan? Japan, I think, is pretty safe. But South Korea is much less safe. It's contiguous, and Xi Jinping is now buddy buddy with uh, with um, you know with uh, Kim Kim Jong Un. Uh, which uh, which people in China, I probably shouldn't say this in English, watch, the, the connection will get disruptive. Um, his, his nickname in, in Chinese is uh, Kim Little Fatty. Almost everybody calls him <laughs> Jin, Jin Zipang, uh, Jin Xiaopangzi. Uh, and uh, so, you know, and ordinary Chinese people have no love for South Korea, uh, for, sorry, for North Korea, North Korea. You know, it's like, why are we spending all our money propping these guys up they're a basket case they've got nothing for us you know they've got well, nothing we want nothing we need
1: the Chinese South leadership is
2: the one who's got yeah. all their companies employing our people we're getting technology from them I have a Samsung phone it works really well you know <clears throat> so so actually uh, I love boy you know uh Chinese people say I love boy bands and you know Korean Korean dramas
1: everyone loves k-pop
2: <laughs> everyone loves k-pop yeah, you know, I don't want to hurt them.
1: Well, so, and we've so got to... a <laughs> the
2: situation the situation in Northeast Asia is that if Taiwan goes, but it's not about Northeast Asia. There's 10 other countries in Southeast Asia that are also pretty important to us. I'm not too worried about Japan. We have a treaty with Japan, a, a clear treaty. And I think we have a cheese, I should know this. I believe we have a clear treaty with South Korea too. We do. And we have military bases there, you know, yeah. which China would love to get us out of.
1: But well, we are we are out of time, but this has been incredible. We need to do an episode two for sure, because we have a lot to talk about. My editorial commentary would be as a somebody who's a was studied Eurocentric uh liberal arts in, in my college days, this is all against the backdrop of really a, a decreasing prowess of european power and um they just really have just fallen off the landscape outside of germany in terms of them being global actors and they're just not material any longer this is really orientation towards asia and the pacific i think on a go forward basis for the u.s
2: so my comment on that is that europe developed first and everybody else is coming up to their to the level that they are that they were at. I was in China in 1980s. It was primitive. Um, and when I say primitive, I mean computers ran nothing. You know, the roads were bumpy holes. And I'm not saying that in a hate, uh, that's not, you know, I'm saying that with love in my heart. I went the to a third China world country. Yeah. With, yeah, it was a third world country. I'm not saying that with hate in my heart. I'm saying it with With, you know, I I love and respect the Chinese people. I don't like the Communist Party that much myself personally. That's just my opinion. But but the country and the people are amazing and is going to grow. Anybody who thinks that China is not going to grow, you know, big and strong over the next hundred years and your kids or grandkids are not going to want to learn Chinese, I think you're wrong. And it's not that Europe, you know, fell back at all. It's like they grew up, they rose up, and then everybody else came up is coming up to their level now. Yeah. But it's all shifting over to um uh to Asia, and uh I I we just talked about the geopolitical situation more. Um, there's a lot to say for investors if you if you ever want to go around too. Well, um, that'll be
1: part. It'll be part two. Once we now we've set the table, we're going to get into. Where the money is to be made or lost, I think, will be chapter two for us. So,
2: is this um, is this useful? Is this interesting? What we're talking about?
1: Oh yeah, it's awesome. I could do this all day, but I do have to jump to a to a three o'clock. So I'm sorry.
2: Got it. No problem. So the big, I'll leave you just with this comment, which is the controlling issue for the next five to eight years is when will they pull the trigger on Taiwan? The entire world economy will crash. It could be World War Three. That's my opinion. Well, don't want to see it I don't want to uh, see it but I but when I look at the forces at play that's what I think is going to happen
1: on that cheery note I think we'll call <laughs> sorry. it sorry <laughs> no it's fine so uh I'll provide content information in the show notes but um you know thank you for for joining us and we will have to do a second uh edition of this because it's been terrific but I want to thank you for the time
2: yeah I'm happy to do it
1: awesome thanks Will all right bye yeah sure bye-bye
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?